been, uh, I've been calling Seski Pastor Seski um, for a couple of years now because he has been a shepherd to the shepherds in this body. What an honor it is to be able to be a part of this day with you, brother. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to open to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, by Ephesians, I mean Ecclesiastes. They rhyme. <laughs> I had a lot of things to remember today, so if I space a couple, my apologies. We're going to be starting a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes this morning that's going to take us through the whole summer. And for many reasons, we felt like this was the perfect book to go through for life here on the Jersey Shore during the summer. And when you're starting any new book, it's always good to give background to help understand the overall theme and context of the book. So I'm going to spend a few minutes on that before I jump in. But Ecclesiastes, keeping the theme in mind as you go through each chapter, is probably more important than just about any book in the Bible, because each chapter is going to relate back to the overall theme of the book. And also, if you hold to Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes, which I do, and that's the way that we're going to teach it here, the authorship gives a lot of insight into understanding this book as you understand the man. So with that said, let's begin to jump in. For those of you that like background stuff, all four of you, you might enjoy this. Um, for those of you that don't, you can snooze for six minutes and then we'll get into the meat. Um, so the author, unlike many books such as the epistles of Paul or the prophets, the author's not named in this book. There's quite a bit within the book that gives you clues to who the author is, but he never comes out and says, I am Solomon, and I'm writing the book of Ecclesiastes. So what do we know about the author? Much of it comes from verse 1, where it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we know that he goes by the term, the preacher, in verse 1, which comes from the Hebrew word, kiholioth, which roughly translates to the assembly, but based on the context, can mean the one who speaks to the assembly, or more simply put, the preacher. We know that he also identifies himself as the son of David, which does not necessarily mean Solomon, though Solomon was naturally David's son. This was a title that was used by many of the Davidic kings. It was a title that was attributed to Jesus Christ himself. Often in the Gospels, we would hear people call him the son of David, but Solomon was the literal offspring from David's lines. We know that the writer served, as he says, as king in Jerusalem. Solomon was the first king to serve from the temple in Jerusalem, so it would make sense for him to mention this. We know that the writer set his heart to acquire wisdom more than any who came before him from Ecclesiastes 1.16. And that would make sense with what's said about him in 1 Kings, that he was a man who acquired more wisdom than any on earth. We know that many of the lessons that he learned were because of empty pursuits and folly and trying to engage his flesh, which definitely lines up with Solomon and the wisdom in this book. We know that his pleasures eventually dried up and that he found great delight when his heart was led back to the fear of the Lord and keeping his commandments, 
which lines up with Solomon's testimony. So if you put all that together, it makes sense that Solomon wrote the book. The arguments against it are pretty weak, and I think that they're just the result of people that just have too much time on their hands and try to get cute with the text. The major theme woven throughout the book is woven through every single chapter. There's this constant repetition of the terms vanity, striving after the wind, and vexation. And as the author pursues all of these different avenues, each seem to lead him back to these terms. Aside from one pursuit, the pursuit of Jesus, the only pursuit that did not disappoint as he went through this book, but he doesn't get to that until the final chapter. It's tough teaching when you already know the ending of the book and the ending is so glorious, but that'll be for 12 weeks from now. So you could say the theme is, if you want an overall theme to use as a nutshell for any of you not, uh, note takers, trying to find contentment or fulfillment in anything other than Jesus will lead to vexation and vanity and is about as fruitful as trying to catch the wind. That's what it means to strive after the wind. It means you see the wind blowing over there. You know that it's blowing. You run over. You know, you're not going to intercept the wind. It doesn't work like that. It's striving. It's something that's not going to happen. And he's saying that's about how much sense it makes to try to find a life of contentment without a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's six major themes in the book. The tragic reality of the fall and how it touches every part of humanity, the vanity of life, and specifically how life sometimes just does not make sense, the unavoidable nature of sin and death, the joys and frustrations of work in a fallen world as a result of the curse that came in the garden, the grateful enjoyments of God's good gifts and his pleasures, and the fact that a relationship with God is the only set of lenses that makes any sense of the chaos in this world. Some people struggle with the book of Ecclesiastes because of the seemingly pessimistic nature of the book and because the author seems to be all over the map with his emotions and how he processes life, as if there's anything in the Bible that says that you're not allowed to be all over the map in terms of your emotions. Solomon has a very fragmented view on life at times, and it results in a very fragmented view of God, and God seems completely fine allowing him to wrestle with his fragmentation over the course of these pages. In my opinion, it is that scattered, fragmented, shockingly honest, semi-pessimistic view that makes this book so relatable. It's, it's not as if that's not found in other places of Scripture. Let's take a look at Psalm 116 to show you. This is my favorite psalm. Um, Marcy made this up for a plaque for me when I, um, one year into being saved, and uh, what a great gift it was. Listen to how fragmented the psalmist is here. He says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. He hears my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I'll call upon him as long as I live. Great excitement, right? So the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid upon me. I suffered distress and sorrow. What? That's an abrupt change from I'm going to rejoice in the Lord as long as I live. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. 
Look at this. He goes right from the snares of death encompassed me to gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then back. I believed when I spoke in my alarm. I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. But now back to worship. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I'll lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Just proof that we didn't earn any of this. He's saying, what could I possibly give God for all he's done for me? The only thing I can do is lift up my empty cup and say, God, can you fill it again? I will lift up the cup of my salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So again, confusion going on. But oh Lord, I'm your servant. I'm the servant, the son of your handmaid. You've loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. And in the courts of Jerusalem, praise be to the Lord. So as you read through that, you see the psalmist is all over the map. He's worshiping. He's struggling. He's afflicted. He's able to deal with that affliction. And God does not seem to have a problem with that. So he doesn't have a problem with that throughout the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And one more thing before we get into chapter 1 on a more personal note. This book was instrumental in leading me to Christ and my conversion. As I read through all the different things that Solomon pursued and found no joy in, I could identify for the first time. It didn't sound like a bunch of religious speech coming from a religious speaker. It sounded like something that I myself was able to identify. I looked at all the things that he tried to find fulfillment, and that was me. I remember being asked when I was working through some addiction issues, and I think some of you can identify with this, what are you addicted to, Eric? And my answer was more. Didn't matter what it was, just more. Just give me something to fill that void inside of me. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. He's trying to fill that void, but nothing seems to satisfy. So I'm not the only one who's tried to fill that void with everything other than seeking the Lord. And if you're here today, I want to encourage you Take note of the struggle that Solomon has. Take note how the only thing that filled that void was a relationship with Jesus. That as I pursued other gifts, rather than pursuing the giver of them, God was pursuing me, loving me, and being far too gracious to me to allow me to find contentment in anything other than himself. Does that sound like it's as relevant as human nature as it was 3,000 years ago? If so, well, even if not, we're going to jump in and see the beauty of this story, and I hope that it's awesome to you as well. So since we've already covered the background stuff in verse 1, let's just jump into the point that Solomon's trying to drive home, starting in verse 2, a point that I think all of us could identify with, and that's that sometimes life just does not make sense. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
What does a man gain by all of his toil at which he toils under the sun? So verse 2, Solomon introduces this idea of vanity as a major theme. And he is about to use that as a set of lenses to look through every aspect of life. And after giving a good hard look, he concludes, sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Anybody ever been in a season like that? Where you look around and just say, this, this, is, this all seems pointless. This doesn't make sense. I can't make sense of anything that's going on around me. Where it feels like everything you put your hand to is in vain. And the enemy wants to give you that thought of just give up, why bother? And the more you try to make sense of that which is going around you, the more confusion just seems to reign. Let me be clear. Though this may be a tad pessimistic he is not defeatist, and he is not a postmodern moral relativist. And what I mean by that is he's not saying that you can't make sense of this world. He's not saying, why bother trying to figure anything out because it's just not going to make sense anyway. We see that all the way down in verse 16 where he says, I devoted my life to the exploration of wisdom and trying to make sense of this insanity that we call life. And he's also not saying in some sort of postmodern manner that life is not going to make sense, so why don't you just go out and create your own truth and you go out and create your own meaning. That's postmodern relativism that defines much of the spirit of the age here in modern America. I don't know what makes sense. I don't know what's true or not. I don't know when I turn on the news if this is real news or fake news. I need somebody to send me a tweet to help me to decipher it. So why bother looking for meaning? I'll just create my own meaning because there can't be any objective standard of meaning. And I just want to let you know that that is intellectually and spiritually lazy. And that's not where he's going with this. He wants life to make sense. We all do, don't we? I mean, he seems not okay with the fact that everything is just so fragmented. And throughout the book, you're going to see that he's constantly looking for something to hold this fragmented life together. He might have times where he struggles feeling like life is meaningless, yet at the same time, he is compelled and driven by this overarching search for significance and meaning. You ever feel like that? Where life just doesn't make sense at the moment? Things feel very fragmented in your life, but something inside of you just will not let you give up and become jaded or cynical, even though it seems like the hardness of life is moving you in that direction. That something, or should I say someone, is called the Holy Spirit. More on him later, but on to the next verses that we're going to see. Some things are universally true, but just because they're true doesn't mean that they bring comfort or make the sense that he was looking for. Look at verses 4 through 11. He says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to a place where the streams flow and where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear fulfilled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has not been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. And there is a thing of which it is said, see this is new? 
Well, it's already been done ages before us. Isn't that a, don't you want your teenagers to just circle that one in their Bible? I mean, I, we all went through it. I, I remember my parents telling me things. I'm like, that was like the 60s, man. Like, you don't understand the 90s. There's nothing new under the sun. So if, if you're that kid that just thinks, these older people just couldn't get it, man, because we have computers. <laughs> oh, listen to Solomon, and he'll tell you there's nothing new. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet among those who come after. So as we look through verses 4 through 11, he's looking at timeless truths. Like the sun is going to come up, the sun is going to go down, and then the sun is going to come up again. The streams are going to flow into the ocean, yet somehow the ocean is not going to overflow. Those of you who live by the beach, do you just marvel at that? That God tells the ocean where to stop, and it stops. There's constantly water flowing into it. There's constantly water flowing out of it, yet it stays exactly the level that God wants it to stay at. And he's saying these things are, are true. They're universal axioms. But just because they're true doesn't mean that it helped him to make any sense of the confusion or any direction for the truth that he was looking for. Solomon was doing a pretty neat exercise here. Have you ever gone through a time of confusion where everything just seems a little bit off? I remember when I was going through the hardest time of trial in my life, a trial so deep where I couldn't even tell who was friend or foe. And I spoke to a brother who I was telling him the hard time I was having to gain perspective. And he put a stick in the ground over here. And he put a stick in the ground over here. And then he just whacked both of them so they were both vibrating like this. And he said, look, what you are right now is you're this vibrating stick and you're shaking. And you're trying to make sense of this thing over here and it's shaking. Why do you think that you're going to end up having it match up and make sense? And he encouraged me to find fixed variables. He said, this is still going to be moving. You can't control this. But you can Stand on the rock so that that's not so scattered and that you're not too fixed variable, that you're not too moving variables at the same time. And when this happens, I encourage people, instead of trying to make sense of everything that is upside down, just set your mind on certain truths that you know that are true. Go back to Philippians 4.8, that which is good, that which is lovely, that which is honorable, that which is trustworthy, that which is of good repute. Think about those things. It's hard to look at a moving target and make sense of a moving target when you yourself are a moving target at the same time. Does that make sense? It's nearly impossible. Those are the times when it feels like nothing makes sense. So Solomon is trying to set his mind on the things that he knows to be true. But just because something's true doesn't necessarily make it comforting. And I'm going to prove it. What are the two things that are inevitable in this life? Death and taxes. All right. How much comfort have you drawn from that this morning? <laughs> Did any of you pay your taxes and just stop with this deep satisfaction and say, I am proving a universal axiom as I write this check that the government's going to waste. And did that fill you? Did it bring you a sense of meaning that you didn't previously have? Did you wake up this morning and circle your calendar and say, well, 
If there's one thing that can put a smile on my face today, it's that I'm one day closer to death than I was when I woke up yesterday. It's true, but I don't know that it gives you comfort. So circle back to the truths in verses 4 through 11. Even though each of these observations may be true, it didn't help make sense of the vanity of life. I mean, sure, the sun is going to rise and set tomorrow. That is a truth. But that a truth alone does not provide much comfort to an aching or confused heart. And to compound some things further, some of the things that didn't make sense just didn't seem all that fair. What's one of the first lessons that you learned as a kid? Let's see if everybody else grew up in the same house that I had. When you go to mom and you say, mom, that's not fair. What do you get? You all grew up. I thought I was an only child, but you were lying to me, mom. (laughs) As soon as kids are old enough to speak and interact with other kids, they learn those four magical little words, mom. That's not fair. And for generations, they've received the same answer. Son, life's not fair. And it's not just kids either. I I just want to confess something to you. It was just so relieving to be able to repent to some brothers in the Lord and repent to Jesus. But in preparation of this message, I've been throwing a fit in my heart over something that I deemed to be unfair. And the Lord used his word to reveal it to me. That's why you should always preach to yourself before preaching to others so that you don't stand up here as a big fat phony and a hypocrite. I was looking at a situation where I expected that the hard work and my righteous motives were supposed to produce fruit that matched my hard work and righteous motives. I had it in my heart how the certain situation should work out And God apparently had a different plan, and I was not okay with that. And I realized that I'm not all that different from a toddler, am I? I'm not all that different than the five-year-old who would go to mom and say, Mom, life's not fair. I was stomping my feet. I just wasn't doing it like this. I was throwing a fit inside my heart in an inward way. And I was convincing myself that it was okay to sulk and to be disappointed with the situation because that's not fair. But the conviction that the Lord put on me and what I want to drive home in the last couple of minutes of this message is that it wasn't really the situation that I was disappointed with. It goes so much deeper than that, doesn't it? My disappointment was actually with God himself. I mean, think of some of the prayers of the psalmists. God allows those to be in the Bible for your benefit when he prays things like, God, I have been righteous, yet you've allowed my enemies to triumph over me. What is he saying to God? God, that's not fair. Think of the book of Habakkuk. God, yeah, I get it that we're wicked, but you're letting us be judged by the Babylonians, and they're even more wicked than us. God, that's not fair. But the interesting thing is, the psalmist doesn't stay there. Since God doesn't seem like he's going to change the circumstances, you know what he does? God uses his spirit to change the heart. When you begin to sulk because something seems to be unfair, I encourage you, look deeper than the situation itself. Look into your heart. If that's you today, and you know that you've been stomping your feet over something that's not fair, look past the situation and look into your heart. Get to the root of it. And if it's disappointment with God, I encourage you, even today, this doesn't have to be homework that you take home and work on throughout the week. The Holy Spirit can change your heart right now. 
He did it to me even this morning as I was praying through this message and I was saying, Lord, why is this so unfair? And he said, settle, Eric. You don't have to be so frustrated with me. Because ultimately when we're disappointed with God, what you're saying is, God, you're not behaving like the good little God that I think you should. You're not behaving in the manner that I think that you should. And where is sovereignty at that point? You think that it's your will that is now sovereign over his and his is subjugated to yours. At that point, you're struggling with a gospel issue. You've forgotten who the master truly is. I would encourage you, if you are loitering around in fair world, do not get stuck there. It's a dark place. Solomon really wrestled. And as we go through the book, we're going to see him wrestle with such things as, why does the hardworking man seem to go without, yet the sluggard is consistently made prosperous? God, that's not fair. Why does the good man die at a young age, yet Fidel Castro is 148? That's not fair. Is it just me or do dictators just seem to live forever? Like, you're just like, will you just die already? Why does the fool receive blessing? But the wise man is given a difficult hand. God, that's not fair. And Solomon wrestles with this all the way until chapter 12. And God had to do heart work on Solomon through the wrestling. So if you're stuck in fair world, I would encourage you, allow God to do heart work on you this morning. Get out of fair world. And the tough part is, is that when you try to figure it all out, At least for Solomon, it made him a little cynical inside. Let's look at our last verses for the morning. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God's given to the children of men to be busy with. How cynical is that? I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. What's crooked, it can't be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all in Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also striving after the wind. He's struggling here, guys. For in much wisdom, there's much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he's trying to figure out this crazy, kooky thing that we call life. He's growing more cynical and jaded inside. That's the rub, isn't it? Trying to make sense of the hardships of life can either make you better or bitter. And you can tell that he's searching because he's growing jaded and cynical in these verses. And if there's anybody here, I just want to shepherd you for a moment, and you know that you're becoming a jaded and cynical person. If you could look at yourself 10 years ago and say, man, my heart was just so much more trusting at one point. When did I get so bitter? When did I start to think that everybody has an angle? And I want to tell you, that's not just a New Jersey disease. I blamed it on that for, uh, of course, everybody has an angle. We're from Jersey, right? No, that's your heart. And if that is you, I encourage you, keep allowing the Spirit to work on your heart. I'd also encourage you, seek the Lord and ask if your cynicism stems from disappointment with God. And if that's the case, I want to give you advice from the great Jimmy Valvano. Don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. Which brings me to the last point about his cynicism. is something kept him searching. 
In verse 13, he even says that I applied my heart to seek and to search out all wisdom. Look, all of us are going to struggle. What I want to encourage you with today, if you're here and you are struggling, God is honored by the struggle. Our God is glorified when we say, I might be disappointed, but I will not give up. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. I feel abandoned, but I'm not forsaken. He knows that I'm disappointed, but God, you're still God, and you're still good. And he thought he would find what he was looking for by seeking wisdom, but unbeknownst to him, what he was really seeking for was something that wouldn't disappoint. The ironic thing is, is the wiser he became, the more he was able to see through the illusion of the things that he thought would make him happy. And the ironic thing is, most of those things were very, very good things. But look, even very good things do not satisfy until they lead you to the heart of the giver of all good things. Good things are never supposed to be an end to themselves, but a means to the end, the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, if you want an example, take something as sacred as the ordination that we just had. I've met so many men in 16 years of ministry that have thought I would be happy if somebody just recognized me and put me in a formal place of ministry, gave me a position, gave me a title, let me get paid for just how awesome I am, and if they were able to see all of my gifts. I've met a lot of men that thought that the pursuit of pastoral ministry was the pursuit of Jesus, and they couldn't have had it more backwards. And they end up being the most disappointed, disgruntled, unhappy people. And then there's the men who seek Jesus, like Pastor Seski did. And then Jesus says, you know what? This isn't about your title. I'll call you to shepherd my flock because you followed me. It, the gifts are never supposed to be an end to themselves. They're a means to the end, and the end is Jesus. So some application questions as we wrap up. Sometimes we need to accept that we're going to feel fragmented emotions. Are you okay with the fact that things are not always going to make sense? During those seasons, it's critical that we do not allow our hearts to get stuck in fair world. If you're constantly stuck on how life is unfair, I would encourage you to look past the disappointment, look past the circumstances, and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where your disappointment is actually with God. If you're struggling with disappointment with God, don't just accept that as the way it's going to be. If I can give you any message that you can leave here with, fight! Fight! It's worth it. Fight to prevent a cynical and jaded heart. Your heart's worth it. And if you've already grown cynical and jaded, I think this series is going to be good for you, but I would encourage you, return to that place of wonder. Listen, wonder and cynicism cannot coexist. When I'm in awe at the wonder of God, I'm not cynical. When I'm cynical, I'm not in awe of the wonder of God. Have you ever sought good things only to be disappointed because it didn't offer you what you thought that it would? Instead of remaining disappointed, let that disappointment lead you to the fount that will never disappoint. And lastly, God is sovereign even when things don't make sense. 
close with a little story. I went, I went to a counselor some years ago after going through a difficult time where I couldn't really find up from down. And I kept just saying, well, you know, it's okay. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And I'm reformed. I have a son named Calvin. I, I've gone to reform schools. And right, we're supposed to be the gatekeepers of the sovereignty of God, right? And the counselor said to me, this very Arminian Pentecostal man, he said, you talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. But what I'm hearing you say is God's bigger than me and can beat me up, so I might as well just take my lumps because I can't do anything about it. That's not the same thing as sovereignty. This sovereignty must go hand in hand with benevolence and goodness for you to arrive at the God who came and revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to worship him through the partaking of communion. Jesus, thank you that you are both sovereign and good. And you do not divorce those things. That they're always intertwined. God, we thank you that even when life doesn't make sense to us, Lord, that you know what you're doing, that you know your plans for us, that they are for our good and not our calamity, to give us a future and a hope. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.